Remember Muskrat Falls and the very public inquiry that followed? And how we learned that residents of the province had been lied to, deceived, misled into believing decision makers and the project leaders were working in our best interest? But most of all, do you remember how government ignored local voices? The same ones that after being ignored for so long, occupied the project site and shut it down for days? Surely a multi-billion dollar project with significant resistance from locals wouldn't be pushed through without a social license again. Fast forward just three years from that inquiry, and that's what residents of the West Coast say is happening with World Energy GH2's Project Nudiohonik, a proposed massive wind-hydrogen project that would see hundreds of windmills scattered across the port port Peninsula and the Kadroy Valley. World Energy GH2, which is owned by billionaire and personal friend of Premier Andrew Fury, John Risley, says those windmills will be around 650 feet high. That's more than three times taller than Confederation Building, the tallest building in Newfoundland and Labrador. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to people's concerns. Residents are watching in horror as the company and the province appear to be rushing the project through the approvals process in order to be first to market with what proponents are calling clean and green energy, the same way Nalcor and the province described Muskrat Falls power without consideration that the project's impacts on locals would render that title meaningless. World Energy GH2 itself says on its website, by being first, we can sign a long-term supply agreement which is key to securing financing for the project. We also need a multi-year market offtake agreement, so the most important piece is the time to market. We've seen it happen with Churchill Falls, so we've seen where that got us. Then we see it again with Muskrat Falls, and then we'll look at where we are now, once again. And then we're jumping back in the same boat, two feet first, you know, with a paper bag over our heads, not looking at where we're going or where this is going to take us. Today, we speak with port port resident Duran Felix, a retired analyst who spent his career reviewing documents for Canada's military. He's reviewed World Energy GH2's documents, and he'll tell us what he thinks. And we'll also speak with Camille Ouellette-Delaire, an assistant professor of environmental science at Memorial University's Grenfell campus who once worked for the federal government reviewing environmental impact statements. Any project that goes through the impact assessment process has a high likelihood of happening, right? If we look at the stats, we're looking between the 95-99% level of project that will go through. We ask Willette Delaire, what possibility is there for a just outcome for residents in Port-au-Port, Bay St. George, and the Codroy Valley? Stay where you're too. Welcome to Berry Grounds. I'm Justin Brake. It was little more than a year ago when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and provincial leaders made an announcement in Stephenville. The Canada-Germany Hydrogen Alliance 
is a historic step forward for our shared future. Our target is clear, working towards initial exports of Canadian hydrogen to Germany by 2025. All of that came before anyone in the province understood what exactly was being proposed and what the associated impacts might be, for better or worse. The visit came before any social license was granted, and even before a single wind hydrogen project had been approved, not only in Newfoundland and Labrador, but anywhere in North America. Now, a growing number of residents on the West Coast are sounding the alarm on the environmental assessment process, which they say is stacked against them and an indication that World Energy GH2's Project Nugeohonik will be built whether people like it or not. My name is Duran Felix. Um, I moved back to the Cape St. George area officially just back in January. I came back... Uh, in early 2022, uh, I I was in the military for a little over 32 years. And once I retired from the military, it was always my intention to move back to the area. Duran Felix says once he returned home, almost immediately he began hearing concerns. Once I got back, I got approached by my sister, you know, regarding this project that was coming up. And she was like, you know, in a panic. And so my normal response after 32 years in the military, and most of which was uh, doing analytics. And so I'm used to looking at documents, doing document research, preparing reports, and essentially being able to figure out exactly with unfair accuracy where uh, these documents are leading you to, what, you know, it sort of gives you a, a fair assumption of what's going on. Uh, so I read through the 130-something pages that they had, and it, it raised a lot of alarms for me. Felix joined a grassroots group of residents concerned about the project, the Environmental Transparency Committee. And those 130 pages he read? They were from World Energy GH2's submission describing their idea for the project. But that was just the beginning. They described the project, the layout of the turbines, the size of the turbines, you know, their, their whole plan that they had at the time. Uh, granted, it's, it's changed significantly since then. It's not just the windmills Felix and others are concerned about. It's all of the potential impacts listed in World Energy GH2's Environmental Impact Statement, a mammoth 4,000-plus page document that outlines everything from potential adverse environmental impacts to potential impacts on human health. Residents had just seven weeks to read it do their own research, write up their responses for government, and then submit that to the province. My name is Camille Ouellet-Dallaire. I'm an assistant professor here at the Grenfell campus, Memorial University. Ouellet-Dallaire says the seven weeks people had to review World Energy GH2's impact statement was not good timing. But that happened directly when school was starting again. The public comments were due right after Thanksgiving. And this is really challenging for family because we know, I mean, I'm a parent myself, that September is one of the busiest time of the year. It's a time of adaptation for the children to go back to school. It's a time of adaptation for the worker. So the parents that work and have to deal with how are we going to 
deal with this new reality that is going back to school. And I would argue that it's even more challenging for women because we know that in this province, there's a true lack of childcare accessibility. Dealing with children, caring for them, uh, raising them is still quite a woman-specific challenge. And so when we put the public comment period at the same time, one of the busiest time for women during the year, it's really ineffective to gain through public comments, especially from this from women as a part of the population. While many may not have had the time or means to read and respond to the company's 4,000-page impact statement, Duran Felix gave it a good look, and he is skeptical. It seems every time you turn around, they're changing some aspect of the project. Uh, in the original submission, as I recall, uh, you know, they talked about 300 permanent jobs once the project was done. And at the time, it was 600 uh, workers that would be coming in to work on the project and the probability of about 1,200 spinoff jobs. You look at the documents now, and World Energy is still saying 300 permanent jobs in Stephenville, maybe 20 technical jobs or so to maintain the turbines. Now they're saying they're bringing in 1,500 workers and upwards of 6,500 spinoff jobs. What are they basing this on? You know, when you consider it's a project that's never been done before, it's the first of its kind, especially in North America. So what benchmarks are they using to justify their numbers? Are they just pulling it out of the air to get people excited and make people think, you know, oh, we're all going to get jobs. We're all going to be employed. Everybody can come home and life will be great. So when you look at it in that aspect, uh, you consider like right now in the affected areas, there's about 2,500 people that's involved in the fisheries. These are permanent jobs that have existed for decades that, that fathers or mothers pass on to their children, right? And those have existed for quite some time. And then you have like the outfitters, you have tourism, you have small business, you know, what effect is this project going to have on all those? And so if you look at even at just say optimistically, just say if it comes up to be 3,500 spinoff jobs at, at the end of this. And it, it doesn't even say if they're permanent or temporary. So if they only last for the duration of the project, then they're gone, you know, and what numbers remain. So if we're going to be optimistic, just say, okay, probably just maybe 3,000 when you consider that there'll only be 300 people working in the plant in Stephenville and whatnot. And so if you got 3,000 jobs, you're actually going to be probably losing more jobs than what you're creating, right? That's the thing that I find a lot of people aren't really looking at, aren't asking questions about, because what I find a lot of people are suffering from is what they call uh, optimism bias, you know, where all they focus on are the jobs, money, prosperity, and it kind of becomes their chant. And, and that seems to be what the company promotes and what the government is promoting. Guys, you know, we got jobs coming in. You're going to make lots of money. You know, your area's going to be prosperous. People are going to come back. This is going to happen. Well, even if people come back, the housing situation in Newfoundland is not that great. And so given all these unverifiable numbers that's being thrown out there, you know, I, I think myself as anyone planning on returning or looking to get one of these jobs, I'd be questioning, you know, is it worse having a two-year job? You know, and then destroying the area for the next, you know, that'll probably be eternity before it, it recovers from it. It won't be in my lifetime, I can guarantee you that. And so you're looking at temporary jobs that last a few years, as opposed to these other jobs, like I said, in the fisheries or whatnot, that can last for, you know, decades to come. And when you look at a project that's, 
bladed the last 25, probably 35 years at the most, um, you know, two years out of that and, and for jobs, and then the rest of them are up in the air. You know, that's, that's quite the risk to take with people's lives, their livelihood, the environment and everything else, you know, in the area. Felix isn't making this up. Local fishers are already alarmed. On October 6th, FFAW Unifor, the union that represents more than 10,000 commercial fish harvesters in the province, said it had tried reaching out to World Energy GH2 to coordinate consultation meetings with harvesters in the affected areas. But World Energy GH2, quote, refused to engage with harvesters in the affected regions, instead asking to meet with the union's executive board, end quote. The union went on to say that, quote, the company claims that their community consultations over the past 18 months were adequate. However, dozens of harvesters in the affected regions have recently reached out to the union expressing concern over the project. As a result, they're calling for an immediate halt to the continuation of World Energy GH2 onshore wind development project in light of the company's refusal to engage in consultations. These are the very questions and concerns that environmental assessment processes in Canada are supposed to address. The reason I got into impact assessment is because after my PhD, I actually got a job as a senior impact assessment officer for Natural Resources Canada, where I really started to understand better the importance of impact assessment as a tool to create fair and just project. When I started in 2019 at NRCAN, we had just started dealing with the new Impact Assessment Act, so it was really a time where there was a lot of conversation about how can we make this act better, how can we make it work uh, from a, both a scientific perspective, a data perspective, and a public engagement perspective. But this process for World Energy GH2's project is not working from a public engagement perspective, she says. I think one of the challenges we're seeing here is that in the current impact assessment context, so I'm talking both in terms of provincial and federal assessment because there's two levels of assessment, it is unusual to have a proponent that hasn't deeply engaged with community before coming in with an impact statement. Most best practices right now ask the proponents or the company proposing the project to really engage prior to getting into the impact assessment. This is not something that has been done thoroughly for this project. World Energy GH2 has repeatedly said it's consulted with communities, but it's also downplayed and tried to discredit a poll done by residents that found the vast majority opposed the project. The insufficient consultations, along with everything else residents are concerned about, is why people like Felix wrote to the federal government asking for a full federal environmental assessment review process. The company has no experience in this, and so there's no benchmarks. There is nothing to compare it to. There's no lessons to learn from this, from other endeavors, from other companies. And so this is, the, like I said, the first of its kind. And we're throwing unproven regulations against it, uh, which is one of the reasons why we pushed so hard to have a federal assessment done uh, so that it would slow things down. Uh, it would enable, you know, uh, a closer look at everything. Uh, it would allow groups such as the ETC to get actual financial assistance to hire our own experts to sit down and digest what this EIS says and, you know, and be able to refute it with professional expertise. In late September, Federal Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault announced his decision on the matter. 
He said that the province's own environmental assessment laws are sufficient to address any potential adverse effects and concerns raised by Indigenous peoples and members of the public. Being denied that uh, screams a lot because it's essentially showing, you know, like, in my opinion, that the different levels of government aren't, don't really care about what the average person thinks, the ones that are going to be affected. In the context of impact assessment, there are two levels of assessment, right? So we have the provincial level, which is currently happening. So we have the environmental assessment that the project is going through right now. It should be noted that it is going through the highest level of scrutiny that is possible in Newfoundland. Um, so we do have a rigorous process in place. I think one of the biggest challenge is that in the federal assessment, it has been reviewed in 2019. So the scope of the impact assessment at the federal level is much broader. It includes more, um, it includes more definitions and it includes more mechanism to help with the right of uh, First Nation across Canada. It also has a bit of a bigger interdisciplinary scope. So we do see more uh, language around community well-being and health. That is not present in the current impact assessment at the provincial level. That's not to say that current best practices in Newfoundland do not include these things. So if you have read the environmental impact statement from World GH2, we do see that they have considered community well-being and have included uh, some statement about the rights of Indigenous people. So in terms of the legal framework, it is, I would agree with Stephen Gilbo that we do have the right pieces in place. I think the challenge is that what we really want to see is that we want to see the government of Newfoundland stepping in to protect the people. And I think that's where people are really concerned. If you have read the impact, environmental impact statement, it is a long document and there are challenges with it, right? There's challenges in how they define negative impact. There are challenges about what they use as the scope of these different uh, very valued environmental component. Um, but it's not unusual for proponent to submit something, but then have the government asking for more clarification, asking for more mitigation measure, or asking for more, um, just more rigorous analysis and more rigorous mitigation measure. I think what is challenging at this point from people in Newfoundland is to wonder what will the government do with this project? We've seen the government of Newfoundland really backing up this project. So does that mean that the government will have a rigorous response? I think we'll see on October 31st. But from a federal impact assessment perspective, I think that when we describe the processes they are accounted for, it's important to know that federal responsibilities and federal entity will take part in the process. So we know that there's going to be public comments from Health Canada, I believe Natural Resources Canada, as well as Environment and Climate Change Canada will submit their own analysis of the document, as well as the provincial counterpart. So we would expect that the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, uh, the Minister of Labour potentially submitting um, a statement as well in this process. There will be no federal environmental assessment process one that often gives interest groups, including residents, the financial resources to hire experts to do their own research. The federal government says the province's laws around environmental assessment are good enough. A decision from the Provincial Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Bernard Davis, on World Energy GH2's environmental impact statement is due on Halloween. Willette Delal says the ball is now in his court. Davis can accept it as it is, 
knowing that the absence of a federal assessment process left residents with insufficient time and resources to comprehend the 4,000-plus pages, or, if he has outstanding concerns about any of the document's contents, he can send it back for further work by the proponent. Some back and forth between government and industry until the impact statement and World Energy GH2's plans to mitigate adverse effects. That's the best we can expect at this point, says Willette Delaire. One of the challenges we're going to see is that this is the first of many wind to hydrogen projects. We need the government to set high standards so that there are a limited number of negative impact to community and a maximum benefit for the communities. And that is in the hand of the government. It is not something that we would expect proponents to do on their own, right? They all are there for making their profit. And by making profit, we know that this means reducing certain benefits, right? But the government should be strong and demand that we have and we find ways to mitigate negative impact to a maximum. And when I talk about negative impact, I think in this case, really impact on social services, impact on women, uh, and impact on the biodiversity of the area are really critical. Um, so I would expect, I would hope that the government of Newfoundland, uh, you know, commits to strong standard for this because this is not the first one. There's going to be many and Newfoundlanders should, and Newfoundland and Labradorian should benefit from these projects. This shouldn't be just the profit of a handful of people. Mm-hmm. There were no community consultations in Cornerbrook where Willette Delaire and her family live, work, and go to school. Yet as the hub of Western Newfoundland, Cornerbrook will certainly feel the project's effects, she says. And so, with the project set to potentially impact her and her family, Willette Delaire submitted her own personal response to World Energy GH2's environmental impact statement. So what is she concerned about? What I did is that I really specifically looked at what are the tools that they use to do their uh, analysis and what are the conclusions. When we look at the community well-being and this especially affordable housing or gender equity, there's really a lack of understanding what are going to be the impacts. So for example, one of the challenges of this project is there's going to be a large population of workers that are going to have to come to the region in the construction phase, so a period of about five years. In the document, we see uh, different numbers at different places. So we see it's going to be only 500 at a time, it's going to be moving around. We also see large number like 3,000 or 4,000 workers. So it's difficult to truly understand exactly how will that unfold. So obviously, from a benefit perspective, it's great for them. So there's going to be 4,000 jobs, right? It looks good. It's a lot of money, a lot of people working. But then if what they really mean is 500 people for each year, and they sum that up as 4,000 people, well, that's very different. It means really just an influx of 500 jobs. But when you read through the in, when I read to the community well-being impact, it's really challenging to understand what this really means. So the suggested mitigation measure is that the proponent will build temporary accommodation. Oftentimes, that's key work for work camps. We know across Canada that work camps have a deep impact on women. They create environment where there's an increased number of sexual violence incidents. We see increase in gender pay gap. We see that men are going to get a lot more money than women. But we also see that this work camp can be really challenging environment to raise a family. 
In particular, in this context, there is no mention of family housing for any worker. So that means that really what we're looking at is a work camp of men, some of them having family from away, that are going to get together, work for two or three weeks, and then leave. So what are going to be the economic impact on the region of these people living in work camps, coming in and leaving? That is not clear. But it's really clear if we look at past experiences in Canada of these type of work camp that they have deep negative impact on women in the community. It's even more challenging for equity deserving groups such as women, but that have an intersectional, intersectional identity with either being a BIPOC or indigenous person. So indigenous women across Canada have really felt deep negative impact of these projects through an increased uh, gendered violence and sexual violence. And there are no mention of this at all in the document, even though that is, it's not true. There is some mention, but there's no mention in the mitigation. What they're gonna do about it, that's not clear. The only thing that's been said is that they're gonna work with the plan from the government. Well, that's not enough for the public to know if that's work for them or if they find that it's not enough mitigation. We need concrete measure. We need concrete policy that will discuss what does that really mean. It is unclear to me when I read the document if this is really going to cover all of the workers that are going to be coming in the region, which means that if there's a remaining number of workers that need to find housing, they will rent apartments, they will rent uh, Airbnbs, they will rent hotel room. The challenge is that we have people here that cannot find housing already. In Cornerbrook, for example, it's really challenging from students of Grenfell Compass to sometimes find housing outside of the residence. So by having this influx of workers that are going to have a lot of money, that are going to be very wealthy, we're going to see impact on the population that has low resources. We're going to see the students and the people in situation of precarity losing access to that affordable housing. And there's no discussion in this document on how we're going to cope with that. There's also no discussion of what we're going to do with the inflation and the rent prices that's going to be caused with this project. And I don't have the solution on this. This is a real challenge across Canada right now. But the lack of even discussing how we're going to deal with that inflation and prices is problematic. You say the project, uh, this project will be the first of its kind in Newfoundland. And as such, it's crucial that the impact assessment provide a legal precedent that benefit the local communities, women and other equity deserving groups. It's in the entire province's benefit to act with caution. The Minister of Environment and Climate Change for Newfoundland and Labrador should recommend that the Cabinet form an Environmental Assessment Board to conduct public hearings and provide funding to local communities to perform their own independent analyses. Um, it's, it sounds like you're asking the province to basically do what the federal government would do if there was an EA process, um, which is they give funding to groups, to residents, to do their own work, to be able to like inform themselves and make informed uh, opinions or concerns. Um, would that be unprecedented for the province to do? What we're really facing here is a huge power imbalance. We have the proponents that have hired a consulting firm that has a lot of knowledge, a lot of accessibility information, and just a lot of time to create these big documents. On the other side, we have the community that don't have a lot of money and potentially don't have the same wealth of knowledge as a consulting company. So providing funding for community to do their own analysis would mean that we're providing them with the means to even that battlefield, to be able to go get their own expert, do their own analysis in a way that is similar to what the proponent would be providing, right? 
So it is unprecedented in Newfoundland, but it's not unprecedented in Canada. I think that this is something that the government should consider as a way to make sure that we get to a place with this project where everyone feels safe, where everyone feels that they are some part of the, they, they will benefit from the project. And I really don't think that at this point, that's how people feel in the region. I think, and I speak for myself, but I, I do think when we look around on Facebook and the comments that we hear from people, people are not convinced that they're gonna get some of the benefit. People feel like right now they're just going to get the impacts and none of the benefit, right? So how do we ensure that? Well, if we were able to provide them with money to do their own analysis, they could bring their own argument about why some of these impacts are potentially larger than what has been proposed by the proponent. I think one of the important part of that statement is demanding that the Minister of Environment uh, demands the cabinet to create an environmental assessment board to do public hearing. That is something that we see in the federal assessment, but it's something that is possible to do within Newfoundland. So that first part of the statement is something that is available to the government uh, in their laws and in their best practices with EA. So I strongly, I really hope that we're going to see public hearings. I think that without that, um, it's challenging to feel like the government has the back of the community here. Duran Felix says many leaders at the local level aren't taking residents' concerns seriously enough, and that at the very least, there needs to be funds set aside to mitigate the project's environmental impacts. In the 15 months that I've been going to the council meetings, there has not been one serious conversation brought up about this project. You'll hear on occasion about permits and stuff, you know, um, that's about all that really comes up. But when it comes down to discussions about the impact this could have, the general feeling you get from most counselors is, like I said, that optimism bias. It's jobs, money, prosperity, and they're not looking beyond that, which is scary. So here's down the road, uh, you know, where the EIS stated, this may happen, that may happen. Well, when you look at all this, if something does happen as, as it will, then all of a sudden now you've got a splitting of responsibility. You know, just say wells dry up or brooks dry up. And we go back to the companies are gonna say, oh no, 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 it's, it's the logging company's fault. They came and did all the logging and that and put in roads and stuff. So they did the damage. And so there's going to be a lot of finger pointing. And then the logging company will go, well, we got the permit from the Newfoundland government. So it's their fault. And so the locals are the ones that are going to be ending off with no recourse, no way to address this because it's going to come down to a matter of finger pointing and deflection of blame. Something like this needs to be uh, included ahead of time uh, before the company is allowed to do any work, you know, to where there's a fund set up for restoration of damaged lands, you know, once this project shuts down, uh, a fund to uh, cover the costs of uh, fixing things that have been damaged, you know, like streams and whatnot, as a result of, of the project. And until this is all done and agreed upon, you know, uh, nothing should be allowed to go forward until, until that is done to ensure the best interests of the public, especially the ones that are being affected by this, not just in Port-au-Port, -Port, but in Codroy Valley also.
Thank you to Duran Felix, retired military analyst and Port-a-Port resident, and Camille Ouellette-Delaire, an assistant professor of environmental science at Memorial University's Grenfell campus in Cornerbrook. Berry Grounds is a part of the Harbinger Media Network. The show is written, edited, and hosted by me, Justin Brake. If you support our work and want to help us produce more critical, unapologetic, independent journalism, visit our site and sign up to become a monthly donor. You can help us reach more people by rating Berry Grounds in the app where you get your podcasts. And you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter at theindependent.ca to get a behind-the-scenes look at our work and be the first to read and hear our stories. I'm Justin Brake. Thanks for listening.